This is fun. We're, uh, we're heading in a new direction this week, kind of a new direction, but Rachel, it's always funny when, when uh, we have these various movements, and before we even realize it, one segues into the other so well uh, and everything, but, but, uh, but Rachel talked last week about God's maternal love, um, and a lot of what she mentioned reflected on the story that begins. She took us through the scriptures, and by the way, if you, uh, if you did not get a chance to be here, if you were not here last week, I encourage you to listen uh, to Rachel's message because um, it had a really, really beautiful impact on our church last week as she, uh, she came and shared with us from Philadelphia. Uh, but she mentioned this first story, and people have been asking about this for a long time, to, to, to go through and revisit this. So many of you have never visited this at all uh, because you've joined us in the last four years or so. Uh, but, but we're going to talk for a few weeks about how our story begins as people of God, and the story, the story that informs us. See, the, the way that stories start changes how people view the world, right? Uh, you, you learn to see the world based on your own origin stories. If you grew up in a home where there wasn't peace among your parents, then that forms you in a way that you view the world in a certain way. For better or for worse, and some things have to be deconstructed and changed, but it affects how you view the world. If you grew up in a home um, where you didn't have enough food as a child, it changed your reality. If you grew up in a home where everything was just given to you because there was an overabundance all of the time, and you just assumed, it might change how you view people who seem to struggle with not having enough. You're like, really? Can't you just do the right things? Uh, if, uh, if you've had a story where you came uh, to the United States as an immigrant child, it changes how you view the reality around you. And so we all have different stories, and those form narratives that affect the lens and, and the way that we view the world. And it's really important that we acknowledge that. So, so when we talk about the stories that form us as a people, specifically um, the book of Genesis shortly, when we talk about that, we are beginning to explore a story that should form how we understand the world. And we won't get into, okay, I'll, I'll talk about that in just, just a, a little bit. But, um, but when we talk about understanding the world, we're talking about a way of seeing things, not a scientific understanding of the world. And so Genesis gives us a starting point as to how we look at reality. In the beginning of it all, the way that the Jewish people explained how it all happened, but not necessarily the mechanics of it, and we'll talk about why that might miss the point. That's where we seem to get distracted all the time. At least the last generation of, of Christians have spent a lot of time on the mechanics of, of the book of Genesis when maybe that's not the heart of what God's people were intending to do. But anyways, we're going to spend a few weeks um, because others have been asking to explore it and because it offers us an opportunity to model a way of approaching the scriptures through what we call the Jesus window. All right, so as when we talk about the Jesus window, what we mean is that our understanding of Jesus informs how we look at everything else. Um, and and so, so there's this wonderful opportunity. You know when, uh, when you find out, when you know how things started, it doesn't necessarily mean that you know how they will end. But when you learn something at the end, it changes the way you see the start. Does that make sense? I'm allowed to give spoilers because after 24 years or whatever, like, you should have seen it by now. But the movie The Sixth Sense, okay, 
The movie The Sixth Sense is a great example of this because what you get is you get and you, you follow a story between two very dynamic characters and then at the end of the story you find out that one of them was dead all along. Amanda goes, what? <laughs> I'm sorry, I told you. All right, that's on you. That's not on me. There's like a, a I don't know, what's a, a statute of limitations on, on sharing stories after 20 years. Okay. Um, so anyways, all of a sudden you go back and you start to see the story in a different light. It's the same story that you watched before, but you have more information now. And that more information changes how you want to see things. Another really interesting uh, modern example of this is that uh, my wife Bethany is a, a designer for theater, for costumes, and she works a lot with Eastern University, and they recently did a show called Working, and uh, it's, it's this musical that really is this fascinating little insight into all of these different careers and the stories behind them that help us realize that when we stand in, a, in an auditorium like this, there were actual people and actual hands that formed this metal and that screwed this bar in, and that painted this wall, and that thought up what this thing was going to look like and designed it. And, and we're all interconnected, and there's so much value in so many stories and people that are overlooked, which is really neat. But here's the thing. If you just watch the show, you think it's, it's cool and it's interesting, but then if you talk to Bethany, you'll find out that she designed every single one of these 40-plus costumes with a bit of red on each costume, and that bit of red was symbolic of the most significant part of that person's identity in life. Now, of course, this isn't told to anybody. She just did it for fun. Um, and for people who, if you're, if you're into costume design, you would recognize things. But, but you have these things where someone's strength and their confidence is in their ability to make things, so they have red gloves on. You have um, a nurse who came from Guatemala, and so Our Lady of Guadalupe is on a little... Um, is on a, a little um, bracelet that, that he has, and, and uh, this, this worker who cleans hotel rooms um, is this unnamed, overlooked person, and so her name tag that bears her actual name is the point of value that she has, that she is a human being, she's a person. And as soon as you realize this, you begin looking for things. And so I was really annoyed, because we went on closing night, so I couldn't go back again and be like, so, so for the whole ride home, and we knew a little bit of this beforehand, but the kids and I were all like, okay, so wait, so tell me more about that one. And which one was, what was the red on this piece? Oh, the little pin, that was her grandmother's. Okay, why? Oh, well, her, she, her family came from here, and her grandmother was the most influential caregiver, and now she's a caregiver because she's a nanny, and all this beautiful stuff. But the point is, the more you know about the background of a story, the more beauty you can see unfolding, the more meaning something has. And so, so this, is, this is what we do. You can see the story at face value, but then all of a sudden you realize there's more under the surface and it starts to explode. That's the central idea of how we understand uh, looking at, at the scriptures through the lens of Jesus uh, and, and even understanding this, this book of Genesis. Stories of the scriptures are intended to be read both forwards and backwards. So when I say forwards in the scriptures, what I mean is that there is an ongoing un unveiling of who God is as you move through the scriptures, okay, that helps us see people's experience. It's very messy, it's not linear, but you get to see people's experience with how they interact with God and understand God, and that understanding, spoiler alert, it changes as the generations go by. People's understanding of who God is changes in the Bible. This is why we can potentially get into a little hot water if we just yank one sentence from any part 
of these 6,000 verses and say, this is, this is the all and all. So let's let the Bible tell us what the be all end all is if we trust its authority. And so what you get is you get this, this gradual unveiling as you go forwards. And what that unveiling eventually leads to is the person of Jesus. And when I mean <clears throat> what, it, what it leads to, I mean people's experience of God ultimately leads in every single way to who Jesus is. All right? Um, you know, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. That's Hebrews 1. All right? The sun is the image of the invisible God, Paul writes in Colossians 1. Uh, no one has ever seen God, but God had, has made God's self known through his one and only son, who is himself God. That's John's first chapter. Like, these are different authors, and these are all in chapter 1. Did you catch that? Because it's a really important starting point for what they're sharing. So it needs to be an important starting point for how we see everything else. So, so the point being, when we look at the scriptures through this Jesus window, we start and say, we know that Jesus is the full culmination. Jesus doesn't kind of look like God. God actually looks like Jesus. All right? This is the fullness that we get. So if that's the case, then as we look back on people wrestling and dealing with their understandings of God, sometimes correct, sometimes incorrect, in the scriptures, we look for glimpses of where we see the character of Jesus in this story of God and God's people. So we read it backwards then, and we also read it forwards. And there's beauty in both directions, all right? Um, and so things have fresh meaning when we get there. And, uh, and we realize that we can hold on to certain things that matter, and we can release certain things that don't seem to reflect the heart of Jesus. But here's the best part. The best part is that even in the first moments of the story, even in the first pages of the story, Jesus is right there, right in the midst of it. So we invite Jesus to help us see this first story. And it's an incredible story. And weirdly, with how much the book of Genesis is talked about, it's a story that gets overlooked, at least the value of it. Because when people think about Genesis, here's what they think. Um, when, when people think about Genesis, they think that it's about the how and the when. Oh, man. Yeah. I'll give myself a free pass on certain words, but not when. So people think that the book of Genesis is about the how, how it was it all, how did it all come to be, and when exactly, how much time did it take? They think that this is the question that we are seeking to answer, scientific questions, okay? But here's the thing that's so beautiful and that's so sad to me. Uh, when you look at the story, the story is all about the who, and it's all about the why, all right? So when we look at the story that forms the beginning of our story, the, the questions that are intended to be answered are about the who and about the why. Who is behind it all? Why? What's the purpose in reality? These are the things that we ask ourselves. So, I want to tell you something. This story, it was meant to be told around campfires, told 
to our children, told with poetry and wonder and awe. And the reason that it was told was not to give a science lesson. It was told to give an alternate reality to the other stories that were being told at the time. And that's what this is all about. Did you know that there are other creation stories that were very common in the ancient world? There were other myths that formed different cultures, and the beginning stories there informed how they saw reality. So I'm going to tell you just a couple of them, and then we're going to get into our story, and we're going to talk about how beautiful and different it is. So there's an Egyptian version of creation, and that uh, revolves around the sun god Ra. All right, And Ra is responsible for creating the sun, the moon, and the stars, as well as the land and the air. Not that different, right? Uh, he creates humanity from his tears, okay, at his sorrow, and, from, and he creates the earth from the elements of his once destroyed enemies. So there's a little bit of a departure. Okay. Story two, Sumerian myth. This is super messed up. Okay, I'm just looking around to see what, what the ages are in this room. So, um, the Sumerian creation epic is, it's, it's called Enki and Ninhursag, okay? And in the Sumerian uh, myth, it tells the story of this fertility god Enki and uh, the earth goddess Ninhursag, and they're working together to create kind of world and humanity. And Enki gives, kind of, kind of, gives humans these gifts of craftsmanship and wisdom while Ninersag brings forth plants and animals. Um, but the problem is that this happens from Enki's insatiable lust and incest for each generation, the children of his wife, over and over and over, to the point that they have to go hide from him. Because he uses them, we're just going to say that, to bring forth each new thing. And he has an insatiable desire for more. Messed up. But, my personal favorite is this one. And this is the Babylonian myth that's written about in the Enuma Elish. Um, now, the interesting thing is we have the creation story, which is, you know, arguably three chapters long, something like that. The Enuma Elish is 900 lines of Babylonian story, and it follows these it follows all sorts of gods, but it follows two mainly. Tiamat and Marduk is when we get to the, the real creation story. And um, it's this goddess Tiamat and her kind of nephew, it's, it's complicated, storm god Marduk. Um, now, when Tiamat gives birth to these demons that threaten her realm, the younger Marduk decides that he's going to go to war and he defeats her in a battle. And the way he defeats her is by taking an arrow and shooting it and, and hitting her square in the middle and it splits her body in half. And part of her body falls down and that creates the earth. Her blood creates the oceans. The mountains are created by her. There's just lots of different things. I won't get into all the details. Um, and then the rest of her body goes up and creates the stars and the heavens. Okay? And so this is the story. Now, what's so interesting? Oh, the, the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers uh, are, come from her, from her eyes and from the tears. The mist in the earth comes from her spit. Okay. It continues, by the way, with bloodshed. Human beings, then, follow in this story, just like the natural world, they become the product of the gods killing each other, okay? The dead god's blood becomes the life source for creating human servants who ultimately do the biddings of the gods on earth. 
Humans were a part of a hierarchy of servitude that would order the whole universe. So this is a direct translation from the Enuma Elish here. Um, this is Marduk speaking about how humans are made. Blood I will mass and cause bones to be. I will establish a savage. Man shall be his name. Verily, savage man I will create. He shall be charged with the service of the gods that the gods might be at ease. That's the Babylonian creation story. See, the brutal people of Babylon, they used oppressive power to control common people. So bringing these bloody origin stories together helps us understand how Babylon warranted, and other strong regimes, warranted um, organizing the world through an oppressive hierarchy. The social order went something like this. The gods on top, the elite of Babylon, and then the poor of Babylon, and then everybody else, including the ancient Jews. All right? This was a worldview that leads to instability for those on the lower end of the power pyramid, always. Right? The religion of Babylon justified the tyrannical actions of their government. So under these conditions, this is when the people of God began to write down the story that they had been telling for generations. A very different story. Now why does all that matter as we get into this? It matters because if this is how you think the world came to be, then you assume things about reality. You assume things like violence and power and competition is at the heart of it all. The gods of these ancient cultures have faded away. But the ideas about how the world is and works are absolutely alive and well. And that's why it's important for us to dive in. We are one giant competition, and the point is to win and get ahead in any way possible. So we have to ask a different question, and that question is, what does the story of Genesis say that the world was founded on? Now, here's the thing. Some things aren't meant to just be picked apart. Some, some things, the way you study a dolphin sometimes means watching it dive, not dissecting it. So I want us to take a step back and hear the story, maybe the way it was told a little bit. All right, so I'm going to take us through this story. If it's helpful to close your eyes, great. Um, I'm not going to, I might give some commentary as we go, but I'm not going to teach it. All right, um, we're just going to let this story sit with us in a similar way maybe to how uh, Dwayne offered a scripture to us at the beginning. So I'm going to be using the New Living uh, version um, of just the, the chapter one of Genesis. And we're just going to take our time. So just receive this story and let it, let it kind of stir you. And then we'll talk about it just a little bit and why it's so significant that this is the story that God's people began to tell. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty and darkness covered the deep waters. These deep waters are a symbol of chaos in Jewish culture. There was chaos and darkness over everything, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. 
the first words of God bring light into darkness. And God saw that the light was good. And he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness night. And evening passed and morning came, marking the first day. Then God said, let there be a space between the waters to separate the waters of heaven from the waters of the earth. The deep blue of the sky brought many in the ancient world to believe that there was water that was being held up above the earth's atmosphere and water below. And that is what happened. God made this space to separate the waters of the earth from the waters of heaven, and God called the space sky. And evening passed and morning came, marking the second day. Then God said, let the waters beneath the sky flow together into one place so that dry ground may appear. Just imagine water, waves, chaos, all of a sudden parting ways, and solid ground rises. And that is what happened. God called the dry ground land and the waters seas. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, let the land sprout with vegetation. Every sort of seed-bearing plant and trees that grow seed-bearing fruit. These seeds will then produce the kinds of plants and trees from which they came. And that is what happened. So imagine God planting seeds. And the seeds grow, and the winds carry their seeds off to new places and new lands. And those trees grow and emerge, and those seeds get swept away and eaten. Not yet. That's coming soon. By the birds of the sky. And it spreads, and creation keeps growing, right? What an image. The land produced vegetation. All sorts of seed-bearing plants and trees with seed-bearing fruit. Their seed produced plants, indeed, and trees of the same kind, and God saw that it was good. And evening passed, and morning came, marking the third day. Then God said, let lights appear in the sky to separate the day from the night. Let there be signs to mark the seasons and days and years. God bringing order and season to sameness and chaos, right? Let these lights shine in the sky down on the earth, and that is what happened Each time we see God exclaiming something and then we hear, and that is what happened. God made two great lights, the larger one to govern the day, the smaller one to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set these lights in the sky to light the earth, to govern the day and night and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. You can join me for that if you hear it coming, by the way. And evening passed and morning came, marking the fourth day. Then God said, let the waters swarm with fish and other life. There were spaces, but there wasn't life, not the way God wanted it yet. Let the skies be filled with birds of every kind. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that scurries and swarms in the water and every sort of bird, each producing offspring of the same kind. And God saw that it was. Then God blessed them, said, be fruitful and multiply. Let the fish fill the seas and the birds multiply on the earth. God creates creation with the ability to keep creating. And evening and past and morning came, marking the fifth day. Then God said, let the earth produce every sort of animal, each 
producing offspring of the same kind. Livestock, small animals that scurry along the ground and wild animals. And that is what happened. God made all sorts of wild animals, livestock and small animals, each able to produce offspring of the same kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image. A beautiful little glimpse of Trinitarian understanding. God dwelling in community, making humans in our image. To be like us. God says, let's make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So, God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry on the ground. Then God said, Look, I've given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth and all the fruit trees for your food. And I've given every green plant for food as food for all the wild animals and the birds in the sky and the small animals that scurry along the ground. Everything that has life, and that is what happened. Then God looked over all he had made and saw that it was, ah, I tricked you. It was very good. And evening passed and morning came, the sixth, marking the sixth day. And I want you just to hear a few final words even though we're going to lean into that and not the day of rest as much today. <clears throat> Thus the heavens and earth were completed in all of their vast array. And on the seventh day, God finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested. Imagine God inhaling with a deep breath, exhaling completely at rest, looking at something that is so very good. Then God blessed that seventh day, making it holy, because on it, God rested from all of the work of creating that he had done. That is a good story. It's a good story. It's did you notice it has a uh, it has a chorus? <laughs> I just I, I get sad sometimes with the way that we've approached a story like Genesis. I've never read a science book that has a chorus. And 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 when you hear me saying this, you might be tempted to be like, oh, so Keith's trying to make an argument that that Genesis one is not true. Uh, no, I believe Genesis one is very true, very true, deeply, deeply true. I just think we've defined truth in the wrong way. If we spend all of our time thinking about and trying to figure out if the earth was created in six days and if Adam and Eve were actual human people, I don't care and neither do any Hebrew rabbis. If you ask them that question, they'll be like, I, I don't know, I never really thought about it. Is Genesis true? Yes, of course. 
Because we've come to define truth based on a post-enlightenment way of thinking. So, so the point is the truth that is being communicated through this story is so deeply beautiful and so countercultural that we've, we've messed it up by having the wrong argument. Believe whatever you want about that. But here's what I want to encourage you with. The story is founded on goodness. Light is good. Oh, by the way, the Hebrew word for good is tov. And it's this like deep word. It's not like, you know, good job on your test. It's like the heart of all that is well and whole. It's almost connected to shalom, wholeness. Um, it's like the deep magic kind of goodness, right? Uh, pure and honest. The type of goodness that puts you at rest in its presence. Light is good. Land and sea, tov. Plants, tov. Day and night are tov. Sea animals and birds are tov. Land animals are tov. It's almost too much beauty to take in. A God who creates good things just because God desires it. Earth, light, soil, trees, oceans, relationships, people. Because it's just what God wants. Because God knows and declares that this is good. And then the Hebrew word for very good is this special word called tov ma'od. And so we finally get to the end of the sixth day. If something's tov ma'od, someone really thinks it's the best of the very best. So after God creates humanity as the crowning jewel of all creation, and that's how the story sets it up, made in God's very image, that's next week, God takes a step back, looks at it, and says, this is all just tov ma'od. It's so good. So, so very good. God is enjoying the world that has been made, a world that's founded on goodness. Now, a starting point for a story like this, a starting point that God wanted to make something good and something that flourishes, that is a different starting story for us than all of the competition out there in terms of the competing narratives that exist, right? Um, the, the interesting thing is the creation here one of the most radical things about this early story, creation is not a result of cosmic violence or competition. So therefore, when violence enters the world through the story of Cain and Abel later, God is confused. What's going on? What have you done? God, this is a foreign substance entering the world when Cain kills Abel. Says, Where's your brother? Because our story is not founded on violence. It's unnatural. That's not the starting point of our world. Our story is founded on a God who didn't rule because God won a battle and destroyed something. Our story is founded on a God who wanted to create something good and beautiful simply out of goodness. When we believe that story, it completely changes how we view the world and all of the cultures and all of the things, even our own foundational stories, it brings around. In one story, wars make worlds, right? And in another story, goodness and creativity do. That's the true origins and the true roots of our life that culminates in Christ. Uh, this is confirmed in how we see God in Jesus. Oh, by the way, I should have said this earlier. I said I wasn't going to pick it apart, but it's so beautiful. It's a poem. If you notice, the first three days are about God creating spaces for things to thrive. And the second three days 
are about filling those spaces so that they might burst forth with life and goodness. So you can see this pattern that's emerging that is so clear and so intentional, and it's the Hebrew style of poetry in its writing, and it's just so good, and it's got a chorus every single time. So anyways, um, yeah, there. But let's talk about Jesus for just a moment. Whoops. When Jesus is talking and teaching people about God's heart, Jesus challenges them and say, says, listen, if you want to be faithful, this is, this is in Luke 6, this is the Sermon on the Plain, it's, it's Luke's version and telling essentially of the Sermon on the Mount, but Jesus looks and he says, if you want to be faithful, instead of following these 600 laws in the Old Testament, sure, they're all well and good, but I'm going to simplify it into loving God and loving our neighbor, and here's how you do that. Love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. So Jesus, over and over, is reminding, by the way, God is good, remember. So if you are trying to follow a good God, then goodness should be the mark. Love, care, forgiveness, loving your enemies even. Kindness, even to people that you don't think deserve it. This is the mark of a good God. And Jesus constantly is helping them see that this is who God is. Later in Luke, again, which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, (laughs) like though you've got all sorts of darkness in you that I see, unfortunately, all too often, if you even love your children and give good gifts to them, how much more will your father in heaven, who is a consistent lover, like you just saw before, How much more does that God long to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? God gives good gifts. God is a good, good parent. God's character is founded on goodness. Jesus, over and over, tries to help people see that God is actually better than they think. More loving, more caring. God is about forming cultures of goodness. Don't we all really, at some level, in our exhaustion, don't we long for that? For cultures of real goodness? Like, genuinely? And we know when we see it. We know when we experience it. You know when you have some time with family or friends that's just characterized by goodness, by genuine care. Sometimes when we serve together, you get a sense of that. There's just something good. Every every time that we get together on New Year's whatever, day, Sunday, whatever's closest to that, and we put together kits, hygiene kits that are sent across the world, and we spend our time sending toothbrushes to people who don't have a toothbrush and soap to people who don't have soap because they've been displaced by violence. There's this little simple thing in the midst of a really broken world. There's just moments of this is participating in a culture of goodness, helping make the world more beautiful. We long for that. And if we begin to see that these are our origins, we are going to be more drawn to be people who participate in creating cultures of goodness that are in line with Jesus. And maybe we can also begin to receive the goodness that God created us for. Uh, We have a lot of work to do, though, in both of those areas. Because there's a lot of other cultures at work that are really easy to join into, right? There's a lot of other cultures out there. We've become very skilled. Here's just a few. At creating... And I will say that this is present both in our world larger and within the church, within God's church. There are churches where if you talk about what are the cultures 
and we are at risk for any one of them. Don't think that we are somehow exempt from the possibility of any of these. There are cultures of arrogance that are founded on being, being righter than others. There are cultures of competition, looking better, being stronger, winning, however you define it. Cultures of critique, where you define who you are by looking and seeing what's wrong with everything and everyone. Cultures of control, where people cannot be free to flourish in their own way, right? Because everybody has to stay in line. Cultures of certainty, where the only way that people and things are okay is if everybody doesn't question anything. Cultures of profit, where bigger and better is always the end result. Cultures of accumulation, very similar, but where success and the good life and a good culture always looks like having more and more and more that will never, ever satisfy that hunger because you always have to have more. Just ask someone how much the right amount is that you should retire on. Right? Like, like if we buy into cultures of accumulation, that answer will never be able to be answered. You always need more. And there's cultures of celebrity where, where we, we disconnect the humanity from people and boost people up and then inevitably power and control and all sorts of abuses begin to happen. So, so these happen in our world, they happen in our churches, and we have an opportunity. And can I just say that so many people have no interest in participating in church because they have not experienced a culture of goodness there? Um, Theologian, contemporary theologian Dante Stewart, I'm not sure if any of you are familiar with him, um, really good voice, uh, really challenging follow on Instagram um, if you are into that sort of a thing. But Dante Stewart recently wrote, and he has a book called um, Shouting in the Fire. And uh, he says, many people don't leave Jesus or religion because they hate both. They leave because they realize how often we love theology more than people, control more than inclusivity, Arrogance more than humility, assimilation more than freedom, and power more than love. What, what he's identifying here is that so many times we have not created cultures of goodness, truly goodness, that seeks to love and value and care for others. And we have an opportunity to do better. And what people are often drawn away from the church for is not because Jesus is just so gosh darn offensive. There are values of Jesus that fly in the face of the values of the world, but many people leave because they don't see the culture of Jesus enough in churches. So we have an opportunity to continue to build something different. Um, there's, there's such beauty and value in that. And as we build something different here and among our relationships and then participate in that, it forms us in that. It's like, it's a cycle. Um, uh, you all know, let's see, I think I have this a couple, yeah. You all know David Brooks? He's a columnist for the Times. Um, he, uh, he says this interesting statement that I thought was relevant, and I'll explain why in a little bit, and then we'll close. Um, he says, never underestimate the power of the environment that you work in to gradually transform who you are. When you choose to work at a certain company, you are turning yourself into the sort of person who works in that company. Does that make sense? Yeah? Like, so, sometimes I want to shake myself and other people, because if you be like, I just, church people bug me. I'm like, we are church people. Let's change that. We are church people. Like, we are living as the body of Christ. 
So, so if we work together to form a better, more good culture that reflects this createdness from God and the spirit and character of Jesus, and we begin to participate in that, we then become the kind of people who are categorized by a culture of goodness. It becomes more natural for us. We become products of the same environment that we work to create, and it cycles through. And then as more people join us, more people start to experience the goodness of God, and then they become co-creators with us to share goodness and justice and compassion in our community. So we have opportunities there. Uh, there's just, there's, there's so much that we can learn, even from a basic story of a God who doesn't create as the result of competition or violence, but a God who creates because God just longs for goodness to flourish and to be multiplied. And that's the starting point. We come from original goodness, not original sin, Okay? We talk so much about that second point. It's as if we think that the whole story of God begins in Genesis 3. It doesn't. It starts in Genesis 1. So we'll talk about even the redemptiveness of of that story in two weeks. But let's have some conversation and dialogue. Let's let's just pray and let this settle for a moment, actually, and then we'll, uh, we'll share some dialogue. Jesus... as we lean into the fact that you long to create goodness, things that are good, um, help us see where we can participate in that more. Lord, I pray that we can sense your goodness that it would soften our hearts if they're dry or cracked or cold. That we'd be able to rest our shoulders and the tension that we hold when we forget that the foundational story is this good. Help us to begin by finding rest in you, not to quickly move on too quick to everything out there. But let us hear the words of Jesus, Lord, that you are a good, good father. That you are one who even loves enemies. So renew us in those truths today.